Our speaker today is Pastor Brian Lair. Uh, Brian grew up as a farm kid in southern Minnesota and is now the founding and lead pastor of Trinity City Church in St. Paul. He met his wife Tracy here at Northwestern in 2004 and later graduated with an MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is also ordained in the Evangelical Free Church of America, and he and his family, they enjoy living in St. Paul where Brian torments his four kids with lame dad jokes. So hopefully we'll maybe get some of that humor here today. I, I love dad jokes. Would you guys please help welcome Pastor Brian Lair? Thank you, brother. <laughs> All right, how are we doing, Northwestern? It's such a joy to be here. Uh, it's uh, great coming back. I haven't spoken chapel since I was a student. I got this gig. I don't think you have it anymore, but in student government, we had a ministry director position that I ran for and got elected in. And Part of that role was essentially interning for uh, who Darren's role was back in the day, and I got to speak in chapel uh, through um, a time in my life that I had massive stage fright, I had massive stage. I've gotten over it now, obviously, so I'm, I'm here and I'm very comfortable being here. Uh, I remember my first chapel as a student that I preached that I was just looking at that exit sign. My girlfriend at the time said that I was preaching to the exit sign, so maybe just wanting to just kind of get this over with and go out, uh, but that's not how I feel today. I, I'm really, really happy to be here with you all. Uh, I want to introduce you to my family. I have a picture of them. Um, that's my family. Um, we have four kids, uh, three girls and a boy uh, from 16 all the way down to nine years old. And you may recognize my wife. She's in the middle. Uh, she often checks many of you into chapel. She works here at Northwestern. She just started working here. Um, and as Darren said, we met here. We were both RAs. That was the year that we met, serving as RAs together. And it was not love at first sight. Uh, she thought I was uptight, I thought she was obnoxious, but we got to the point that we had four kids, so we worked it out. Um, <laughs> uh, my other uh, picture I want to show you, this is my church family. This is Trinity City Church gathered. Uh, we bought an old uh, Methodist church building. We meet uh, and gather in a building right by uh, the University of St. Thomas and McAllister. A lot of my campus ministry includes uh, staff and students from those locations, and many of the families that uh, attend Trinity are folks that live within about five miles of this uh, church building. My family, we live within two miles. I often bike uh, to church, and it's just an odd thing. My, I grew up rural, as you heard, in southern Minnesota, near Albert Lee. I don't know if we have folks that have come from that area that, that go to school here. Yep. I, I know, just like, there's not a lot of us that are excited about Southern Minnesota, but there's a handful of us that are. Um, but my two older brothers uh, think it's just incredible that I even live in this city. They call me a city it uh, because they just don't understand why I would enjoy it, but I really do. I enjoy living in the city. I enjoy uh, being a pastor to, to folks that live in urban areas, and it's just been such a joy. What we're gonna to do today uh, is look at the practice of Christian worship. Uh, but before I get into that and unpack how we're gonna look at that uh, Christian practice, uh, let me pray and we'll dive into the, the message. Let's pray. <clears throat> Sovereign God, you gathered all these people here uh, to hear this word uh, from your scriptures. I pray, Lord, that uh, we receive it with open ears and open hearts. Uh, that we receive it from your gracious hand that is so pleased with us and, uh, and who we are because of our faith in Christ and the work of his death and resurrection. 
And may now your spirit move in this place in such a way that whatever you have for us, however you want to change us by your powerful word, that that would happen right now by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So yesterday, Darren mentioned this, the uh, church calendar year started with the first Sunday of Advent. That's something that our church celebrates as well as the church calendar. And it's uh, Advent season, so it means it's a season of yearning and anticipation that leads us into the days of Christmas. If you're familiar with the church calendar, uh, Advent is like the New Year's Day of the church calendar. It's the beginning of the church calendar. If you're not into the church calendar, obviously New Year's Day is right around the corner. So this is really a season of reflection. Often at the beginning of something, the beginning of a church calendar year, the beginning of our annual calendar year, you might be thinking about uh, your life and taking inventory about the year before that you just went through and maybe making plans about the year ahead, what types of improvements, uh, especially maybe about your habits that you want to make. I know this time of year, I often think about my spiritual habits, my relationship with the Lord, and thinking about ways that I might be able to improve that. I even think about when I used to be a student, how intensely I would think about my habits, especially this time of year, about things that I wanted to do better and be better at. Uh, this was the type of year as a student I would start thinking about maybe starting a new Bible reading plan because January 1st was right around the corner. And I would always pick the most ambitious ones. You'd like, you know, read the Old Testament twice and the New Testament three times and the Book of Numbers five times, right? Just the, like, just the most intense ones and usually that didn't work out. Or that I would be in a lecture at a, at a class and hear about the resolutions of like an old Puritan and I'd be like, I want to be like him and just be like, I'll give my whole, whole life to a time of prayer and have a prayer closet that never come out. Uh, or you're just like, you know, I just want to be better about, you know, going to uh, required chapel and not be salty about it. I just want to be here and enjoy what the purpose of gathering in the name of Jesus is all about. But it's hard to stick with a new commitment. It's hard to make a new habit. We often uh, lose motivation. The busyness of life and studies takes time away and we fall back into old routines. Maybe one of the reasons for that is we often make difficult goals, things that are really hard to achieve. It's much easier to follow through on our habits and our resolutions and our commitments if we uh, pick more like low-hanging fruit. Just think about it. Like if you committed to, in 2024, not to a marathon, but eating more tacos, right? What would be easier? What would be more enjoyable? I think the tacos, maybe. I don't, do you guys like tacos? You didn't really, anybody like tacos? Okay, all right, just making sure. Didn't know if I offended anybody with that, that but yeah, like tacos would be great. I would, like, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would hit that New Year's resolution out of the park, but often we pick things that are really, really difficult. These types of resolutions and spiritual habits are an important part of our life in the Christian life. We have habits and practices that are part of life, and it reveals things, too, about who we are and what our hearts desire. We know regular practices impact us over time because our day-to-day -day habits form us to being a person that we will be in the future. I think about a, a book by James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love, that takes a lot from the framework of St. Augustine. You are what you love, you are what you worship, that both your habits reveal uh, about the things you love and also form your heart to love certain things. So today, I don't want to consider practices in general or all types of Christian habits. There's a lot that we could cultivate, but I want to really focus on the practice of Christian 
worship. We'll consider the definition and purpose of worship, how all of life is an act of worship, and then I'll end by offering some practical guidance on how to make uh, worship a daily habit in your life. So let's start with the definition and purpose of worship. Worship is more than music during a religious service. Worship is one's sense of awe in response to some type of beauty or majesty. It may be a response to something even miraculous or frightening. This response of awe can also be expressed by not knowing what to say. You're speechless. You see this in the scriptures. Or you fall to the ground or you respond by committing to acts of service. Worship in the scriptures also uh, could be used in more secular settings. I know we're very used to it being a more religious word, but it has secular meaning. Secular people can worship as well. Uh, you might have worshipped in situations where you uh, weren't in a religious setting. Uh, think about it as maybe a Vikings fan, right? There's not a lot that we uh, get to get excited about, but back in the day when we were facing uh, the Saints in the playoffs, you remember the Minneapolis Miracle, Right? I was watching that live and I thought we were done, we were cooked, and this is just like the Vikings' fate playing out again, right? But then they launch that just prayer, right? And hit the receiver, digs, and he went into uh, the, the end zone, had the touchdown, and I didn't just sit still, I erupted. I was excited. This sense of awe and excitement about what happened because usually we miss the field goal, we don't get the touchdown at the end of a game when you're a Vikings fan. That's kind of what it feels like. So that's a secular version of it, but in Christian theology, it's more specific. Worship is a response to God's revelation of himself through things like creation, the scriptures, and ultimately through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. God has made himself known so that we may worship him. As Martin Luther once said, to know God is to worship him. And Christ in his gospel paved the way to worship God. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance of that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswaveringly to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. It's important to note before we get into the practice of Christian worship that you are not justified by your devotional life. It's not what sets you right with God. A life of worship is something that Christ has already opened up to us based on his work his death, and his resurrection. So you need to first start with let, letting grace liberate you from a view that the practice of worship is a requirement of the Christian faith. It's not. Worship is a response to God's grace and a grace that has already been given to you because you have been justified by the blood of Christ. And Christ cleanses you to approach God in a very holy and intimate space. So then, if that's the case, we're not, we're not justified by our devotional life, why do regular practices of worship anyway? There's a church father that once said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God 
is a human being fully alive. To be exposed to the glory of God is what it means to be human. It's our purpose as a human being. It's what we are made for, and we come alive and we experience the rich and satisfied life when we get to see and savor the glory of God. And Christ has made a way to do that. So we, we participate in worship, not to get ourselves right with God, but to be coming alive as a human being because what we're meant to be is a person that is exposed to God's glory in worship that Christ has made a way for us to do so. And one of the things that you might be thinking right now is, man, I am just spiritually dry right now. I am having my doubts. This is something that sounds great, and I would love to aspire to this, but it seems so hard. And maybe there's some things that you are doing that, that don't seem to be working. And I think there's some ways that we look at worship that actually set us up for discouragement. Let me give you a couple examples. If you're, if you're trying to respond to like a, a period in your life that happens in the Christian life of being spiritually dry, one thing you say is like, all right, what I'm going to do in this season is, is I want to know more intellectually. I'm going to work hard to getting more theological facts into my brain to really memorize some things. And your objective is to know more. But one thing we know about the Christian life is that it's more holistic than that. Knowing things about God is a good thing, but it's, it's not the end of, it, of itself. We're, we're a heart, soul, mind, uh, strength being, that all of our life is to worship God, not just our minds. And think about it this way, like you can know a lot about something, but not truly experience it. Think about if you have like a favorite car and you read the whole manual about the car, and you know all these facts about the car, but you've never taking it for a drive. Do you really know that car? And the Christian faith is similar. Like you can know a lot of uh, facts about the Lord, but the Christian life is much more holistic than that. It's a, it's a way of life. It's all of life. It's much more comprehensive than our minds. So worship and the practice of worship must be more than that. Another response to spiritual dry times that you might have is that you need to feel more. That you're just like, I just need, like, I need, a, I need that praise song with a bridge that gives me all of the feels. I need, I need a pastor that can, that can make me laugh so that I can feel good in that experience of worship. And so you, 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 you define your experience of worship based on emotive reasons, how it makes you feel. But what's interesting about that is that a lot of Christian worship is pretty ordinary. It's pretty mundane. It's pretty regular. It's not always these spiritual highs uh, that we experience. It can be that, but it's often uh, more than that. Author Tish Harrison Warren uh, talks about how important it is to remember that worship is sometimes expressed in the Lord's Supper and how ordinary that that means of grace is in the Christian life, that it's just brothers and sisters breaking bread and drinking the cup together in a way that's very mundane and ordinary, and that that's a way and a picture for us to think about Christian worship. Uh, think about it this way. Like, I come from, the, I, I live in the city, and uh, foodie culture is really big in the city, right? And some people think about, like, like just daily meals and chasing that, that feeling, that high of having the experience of a meal. So they go downtown to this amazing restaurant that just opened up, and they order the chicken, and they want it to be, like, this experience, so they just act... You know, they ask, like, the background check on the chicken. Like, well, you know, does the chicken have, like, a birth certificate? Was he treated well? 
well? Was the chicken married? Did he have a name? Like you just want to know all this thing because it heightens the experience of like going out to eat in foodie culture. And sometimes we treat the Christian faith like that and the practice of worship. It always has to be this high. It always has to be this big deal. But I think the Lord's Supper as a practice even teaches us as a way of Christian worship that a lot of Christian worship is ordinary. Just like you being alive with food, most of the meals that you have are forgettable. Most of the meals that you have are probably not at this spectacular restaurant, but most of them might be ramen in your dorm room or, I don't know, pasta and chicken again at the cafeteria, right? And that's what's keeping you alive, and that's what Christian worship looks like as well. I want to also talk about how comprehensive Christian worship is. In the scripture, worship is not a one-time response to something that happens. Uh, Our calling as Christian is to give our life to God and and worship in all of life. In the scripture reading, um, uh, my main passage rather, Paul ends with an expression of worship in light of God's sovereign grace uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel in the book of Romans. Through Romans 9 to the end of 11, he erupts into doxology. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And then he continues on in Romans 12 to say, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you would be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So Paul says, in light of God's glory revealed in the gospel and his mercy to us in Christ Jesus, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is his way of saying, offer your life as a living sacrifice, that all of your life Your whole person is offered to God as an act of worship in response to what he has done. And there's other texts and commands of scripture that talk about the comprehensive nature of worship. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You have 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. How do you do that? Because we know that we don't literally are aware that we are praying every single moment of the day. So what does the scriptures mean and how can we think about this theologically? I borrow from a uh, a Dutch uh, theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who draws a distinction between distinctive worship and instinctive worship. And distinctive worship is when it's distinct, it's set apart, you know that you're doing it. It's a time in your, in your life throughout your day that you are pausing to pray, that you're going to chapel, that you're going to a Bible study, that you're gathering with the saints in uh, church. And that distinctive worship fuels instinctive worship. That's worship that's, uh, <clears throat> that you're not um, aware that you're doing it. It's, you're, not, you're not conscious that you are actually practicing worship. Let me, let me give you an illustration of how this works in uh, other types of ways. You ever had a situation where you distinctively listened to a song in the morning, 
but then instinctively the rest of the day it was in your head and you weren't even aware of it. That somebody might have told you like, hey, like you're humming the song, you've been humming it all day. And you're like, oh yeah, that's right, because I listened to it in the morning. But think about like, I have this experience a lot with Taylor Swift. Like I, I, I'm not a Swifty, like I respect her music. Um, like if, if the songs I usually get in my head are like, you know, musicians like maybe Zach Bryan or Leon Bridges or something like that. Uh, there we go, yeah, yeah, so those are my guys. But like I respect Taylor Swift because she gets in your head. My daughter listens, one of my daughters loves Taylor Swift's and I can, I can listen to that with her in the morning and then I'm like set, like that's in my head. That's how distinctive worship functions to create all of life worship. We pause for moments of worship and prayer because then that fuels all life worship. It becomes the soundtrack of the gospel throughout your life when you're studying and when you're working off campus or whatever you're doing, that that now distinctive time of worship fuels more instinctive ways of doing worship. It becomes the soundtrack of your life. But what does daily worship mean then? If we're committing ourselves to distinctive worship and daily habits, what could that look like and how do we understand it? I'm gonna define daily worship as regular times where we communicate with God and he with us. So that's two ways, right? Daily worship is that God communicates to us and we communicate to him. It's a two-way street. We communicate to him through words of prayer. So prayer is always a big part of distinctive worship. And then he communicates to us through the scriptures, his word, his powerful gospel, and the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, declaring to us the promises of God. And there's always a debate about how often, uh, there's a good book that Tim Keller wrote on prayer, the last chapter he details like how often this could look. There's uh, Daniel, you know, prayed three times a day. There's, there's medieval monks that did prayer eight times a day, which I wouldn't suggest that, I don't do that. I'm a pastor, uh, I don't even do that much. Thomas uh, Cramer, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, he says morning and evening, John Calvin said, five times a day, morning before you work, when you sit down for a meal, after you eat, before you go to bed. You get the idea, there's different opinions. And I think the, the amount doesn't matter as much as that you're committing yourself to some types of times in your daily life for distinctive prayer. And let me give you some tips even on that because I know if you're like me, sometimes it's, you struggle with what, what does that look like? And am I doing it right? And, and you get this, you kind of get in your own head whether or not that it's a beneficial time of distinctive prayer. And let me just focus on, uh, for the sake of time, I, I usually talk about practical ways to think about prayer in distinctive uh, daily worship, uh, but also scripture. Uh, we'll probably only have time to just look at uh, some practical guidance for prayer this morning. Martin Luther, to go back to him, wrote, uh, a lot about prayer in his own personal devotion life, and he had some very unique approaches sometimes to daily worship. A mentor of mine drew uh, my attention to this quote from Luther where he said, quote, I resist the devil, and it's often with a fart that I chase him away, end quote. I'm just quoting Luther here. I'm not trying to be indecent or break a lifestyle agreement with my language. That's what he said. If you know anything about Luther too, he was a gassy dude and he just kind of passed gas for the glory of God. And he says, I want to treat the devil in such a way that he's such a despicable being that I'm going to break wind in his general direction. And that's what he would do in his daily time of worship. 
kind of a unique approach. I'm not suggesting that's what you should do. Your roommates might get upset, but it's something to consider, right? It's a unique, here's some other things that he said, all right? A little bit more uh, less crass and more practical, all right? Here's four things that, that Martin Luther said. If you struggle with a life of prayer, here's some tips to maybe follow. He says, try praying out loud. Maybe it's a struggle to pray in your head because your mind wanders, so try praying out loud. Uh, number two, he says, try to pray uh, short prayers. Luther believed that some prayers would get mindless and long-winded. Luther says that a good prayer is, quote, must have few words, but be great and profound in content and meaning. Focus on the quality rather than the length, Luther says in our prayer life. Number three, uh, Luther says, pray for others and not just yourself as a way to cultivate, cultivate a habit of prayer. Number four, he says, pray with others. This is a really beneficial one to me because I'm an extrovert. I've always struggled with personal prayer by myself and often uh, cultivate prayer habits in, in uh, group settings and with other people. And I would also, in my own life, I've really <clears throat> benefited from praying through the Psalms or using the Lord's Prayer as a framework for prayer or buying books of prayer because I often can keep more focus by reading the prayers of others and making that my prayer. Let me end with this point. I think it's important, this is why I brought this message here, is because uh, the point of all these tips and this message is to show you how ordinary and normal the practice of worship can be. And sometimes I minister to, to young folks that have just received bad advice that are just overly pietistic, and they just carry around burdens in their heart about the practice of worship and prayer because they're always paranoid about whether or not they're doing it wrong. There's this one girl in my congregation that received some bad advice that somebody said to her, if you pray, make sure that, it's, that, that you know what you're going to say because if you don't know what you're going to say, if, you just, if you're just like speechless, then don't pray at all. It's not worth it. And also don't ever do short prayers. If you're going to take time to pray, uh, make sure that, that it's worth it and it's long and it's intentional. And I told her, sister, that's toilet water theology. Like, where, where did you hear that? We're not justified by how articulate we are in our prayer life. We're not justified by the length of our prayers. What a terrible burden to carry into daily worship, especially how freeing and grace-filled and ordinary it can be. Like, just think about this. Like, there are moments that I have, have gone through life where I do not, I'm a pastor, do not have words for the Lord in prayer, and I just sit there in solitude and give him my thoughts. In fact, this is what Romans 8.26 says. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through words uh, wordless groans, that you sometimes come to the Lord, don't even know what to say, and you just sit there with your, your thoughts and your wordless groans because you receive some news that just flatten you in the valley of suffering. And in that moment, it's not like, oh, now I don't go to pray because you don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit's got your back. Go to him in prayer anyways, even if you have nothing to say. 
Or like don't shoot arrow prayers, that's what he called them. Like the shoot, you just have these like short prayers that you fire up to God throughout the day. Like don't do that. Brothers and sisters, I make a living off of arrow prayers. Like where did that advice come from? Like I remember when she told me this the night before I discovered an ice dam in my house and one of my, my windows was like flooding with water. You better believe I shot up an arrow prayer right there. I'm like, Lord, like this is like theologically speaking, not even my house. This is your house. Why are you ruining your house? That was my prayer, right? <laughs> and I knew he heard me, not because that was a particularly articulate time of my life, but because Jesus bought my life of prayer and worship with his precious blood. He loves us and he welcomes us into those times of distinctive prayer for his glory. Let me give you a benediction and you can be dismissed, all right? Lord God, we want to be welcomed into prayer and a, and a habits of worship in a distinctive way, knowing that you have paved the way to your presence through Jesus Christ. Help these times of commitments to reading your word and praying to you be also a time that fuels all of life being an act of worship, no matter what we do throughout our days that it would be offered to you as a living sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys.